0: A warm welcome to First Move. Fantastic to have you with us on this fully engaged program edition. Debt ceiling negotiations still not ready to commit. Talks are ongoing. We hear progressing bit by bit. Investors, though, remain immune. We hope their optimism proves legit. And in banking, Jamie Diamond says no retirement yet. It's no time to quit. And a wedding in space, perhaps, if Jeff and Lauren see fit the latest reports on the Amazon billionaire's bliss coming right up. And speaking of Earth orbit, we've got the author of the new book, When the Heavens Went on Sale: the misfits and geniuses racing to put space within reach. It's an exciting and amusing character-driven look at the new space age and the startups that are transforming the business of the final frontier, some of whom we've spoken to. And we'll also survey the highly challenging AI-driven Frontier with investor and startup founder Scott Belsky. He's currently the chief strategy officer at Adobe. And Adobe's new Flyerfly software has text-to-image tools. You can take a look at this that can transform, but also authenticate AI-altered or created imagery. Now that's key. It's a timely conversation in light of the market-rattling fake Pentagon explosion image scare that took place on Monday. Just to reiterate, that's not real. We've labeled it. Now, no rattle on Wall Street pre-market. Global stocks remaining pretty calm, even as investors await those debt ceiling talks. Resiliency, I think, is the operative word here. The Nasdaq 100, in fact, hitting a more than one year high during the session on Monday. And beyond the debt ceiling uncertainties, as I mentioned, J.P. Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon warning again at his company's Investment Day event. that bank lending continues to tighten, and that's a big economic headwind, but still he foresees that perhaps interest rates could still rise as far as 7%. He also rebutted questions about his future. He's going nowhere for now. And we are going to repeat ourselves by discussing the latest on the debt ceiling talks. With U.S. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy expressing some optimism after meeting with President Biden on Monday.
1: I felt we had a productive uh, discussion. We don't have an agreement yet, but I I did feel the discussion was productive in areas that we have differences of opinion.
0: Mm -hmm. The two sides are working to strike a deal with just nine days left until a potential U.S. debt default. Lauren Fox has all the details.
2: Yeah, Julia, nine days to go and still no significant breakthroughs in these negotiations, despite the fact that House Speaker Kevin McCarthy met again yesterday in the Oval Office with President Joe Biden. They made clear after that meeting that they are going to continue to have these negotiations. Last night, White House negotiators and Hill negotiators got back in the room around 10 p.m., met for about an hour before the White House negotiators departed Capitol Hill. It just shows you they are working around the clock. But they remain very far apart when it comes to how much they each believe they should be spending on the federal government. You have Republicans arguing they want to stay as close to their bill that they already passed as possible. That would fund the government in FY 2022 levels with a small increase over a six year period. Then you have Democrats who made an offer over the weekend that they would be willing to freeze this year's spending levels for two years. That was a non starter with Republicans. So both sides remain largely at odds on that central question of government spending. That is before you get into some of the ancillary issues that they're dealing with on work requirements, on permitting reform, on clawing back some of that COVID money. Meanwhile, time is starting to run short. You have nine days. You have potentially at least three days that this would take to get through the House of Representatives if a deal could be reached and potentially even longer in the U.S. Senate. That just doesn't leave you very much time to figure this out. Julia.
0: Mm. And for more on this, Matt Egan joins us now. Matt, good to have you with us. You and I have discussed in the past that investors generally meet this kind of brinkmanship with a big yawn, because I think for the most part, the assumption is that politicians wouldn't be stupid enough to allow the United States to ultimately default on its debt. But I do think perhaps a few angry calls from pensioners, 401k owners, even donors for some of these um, politicians might help focus minds. What do you think?
3: I agree completely, Julia. You know, it's amazing how chill Wall Street has been about this debt ceiling situation. Uh, You know, the U.S. stock market, the S&P 500, is near the highest levels of the entire year. The Nasdaq is up by 21% so far this year. Fear and greed, the uh, index, the CNN gauge of market sentiment, that is getting closer to extreme greed. So just looking at the market, you would never know that there's this ticking time bomb going on, uh, you know, threatening to crash the whole economy. Um, Now, here's the problem, though. You know, Congress in some ways is kind of like a toddler. And, And I've learned from personal experience that... It's really hard to get a toddler to do anything that he or she doesn't want to do. You kind of have to make them want to do it. And so, how do you get Congress to want to address the debt ceiling? Well, to your point, um, I think some market turbulence uh, would certainly get voters and perhaps more importantly donors upset enough to call their lawmakers and put some real pressure. You know, light a fire underneath um, Congress. Now. No one wants to see, you know, a market panic here because that would hurt the nest eggs of real people. But right now, we sort of have this uh, feedback loop where investors are betting that this is just going to get taken care of. So markets are calm. Lawmakers see that markets are calm. So they're not in a rush. And it goes on and on and on. And so you kind of need something to break that cycle. Uh, Moody's analytics chief economist, Mark Zandi, he told me that, you know, unfortunately, he does think it's going to take some market turmoil before Congress addresses this. Uh, and Ed Mills of Raymond James, you know, he summed it up best. He said uh, what worries him most right now is that there's not enough worry.
0: Yeah, <laughs> the worry is the lack of it. Um, yes. Well said. Matt Egan, great to have you with us. Thank you. Now on and a cause of deep concern, quote, the Kremlin speaking out about Monday's brazen cross-border attack on Russian soil. The governor of the Belgorod region says counter-terrorism operations are ongoing and he's urging residents not to return to their homes. A group of anti-Putin Russian nationals are claiming responsibility. Ukrainian officials acknowledge the attack but deny direct involvement. Meanwhile, Moscow says the region was hit again overnight in drone strikes that damaged several private homes. CNN's Fred Plankin joins us now live from Kiev. Fred, great to have you with us. Sam Kiley was saying to us yesterday, one of the few areas, it seems, where the Ukrainians and the Russians agree that these are sort of anti-Putin Russian forces that are active yeah. on Russian soil. What more do we know about them and perhaps mm. how many there are?
4: Mm, yeah, I would say that both of them, they agree on that, but certainly the Russians still are very much blaming the Ukrainians. It was quite interesting, Julia, because a couple of minutes ago, there was a briefing by the spokesman for the Russian defense ministry, uh, Igor Konashenkov, where he claimed that the Russians had now pushed out, as he put it, all of the remaining attackers uh, back from Russian soil onto Ukrainian soil. And the Russians there also saying that, as he put it, they liquidated 70 of those attackers. Now, they called them nationalists invading from Ukraine. And, of course, that's something that is key because it shows that the Russians are blaming Ukraine for this attack. In fact, also, one of the things that the Kremlin said earlier uh, is they said that they believe that the Ukrainians uh, are behind uh, all of this because the Ukrainians are obviously facing, as they put it, as the Russians put it, defeat in Bakhmut, and they say that they want to distract from that. I was actually able to speak to the National Security Advisor of Ukraine earlier today, and he did also acknowledge that these are groups of Russians that here inside Ukraine, they fight on the side of the Ukrainian military, of the the Ukrainian defense forces. But inside Russia, they are essentially independently doing their own thing. So the Ukrainians are saying they are not behind this. They have nothing to do with this. They are saying, first of all, this shows that there are big divisions inside Russia and certainly people inside Russia who do not support Vladimir Putin. Uh, so the Ukrainians are essentially saying that they are not behind this attack. Of course, whether or not the Russians will believe that, it certainly does not appear that that at this point in time is currently the case. The Russians, for them, of course, this is, something that is I wouldn't necessarily say embarrassing but certainly is a concern for them as once again there was a cross border incursion that it took a very long time if it is indeed over now for the Russian security forces to actually come to terms with in fact that same governor that you were quoting before he was also saying that the people there in that territory who normally live in that territory still have not been able to return to their, to their homes. They are being urged not to go to their homes yet because those sweeps are still going on. So definitely, this is a big security incident that happened on the territory of the Russian Federation that Russia is blaming Ukraine for, but that the Ukrainians say they have nothing to do with this because these are Russian citizens operating inside Russia, Julia.
0: Yeah, and a clear embarrassment for the Kremlin. CNN's for Pleitgen, life is there in Kyiv. Thank you. Coming up now on First Move, bin or maybe bench. Those brushes. Adobe putting the art into artificial intelligence with no traditional art expertise required. A dog in a Santa suit, perhaps? That could be done. It's the only way Romeo would go in one anyway. We'll explain next. Welcome back to First Move. It's not often that you see this kind of excitement at a company's annual general shareholder meeting. Take a look at this video just into CNN of climate protesters who stormed Shell's annual shareholder meeting in London. They're demanding the company stop investing in oil and gas extraction. Security staff shielded the Shell chief executive and the firm's board of directors, as you can see here, and they ejected The demonstrators who um, clearly were in control for a, a portion of that meeting. Wow. Okay. Now you're about to see, and what you're about to see is a fake image which caused some real confusion. This image, purporting to show an explosion near the Pentagon, was shared by multiple verified. Twitter accounts on Monday, including an account falsely associating itself with Bloomberg News and a real major Indian TV network that was later retracted. Experts believe it was likely created using artificial intelligence. There was nothing fake, though, about the impact it had on the stock market, at least temporarily. Shortly after the images started circulating on Twitter, the Dow Jones average fell around 80 points between 10.04 and 10.06 Eastern time in the morning. And then you can see a few minutes later, they recovered. Joining us now, CNN's Donia Sullivan. Donia, at this stage, AI could do a better job than I'm doing of talking in straight sentences. Um, but for those that are concerned about the overlay of artificial intelligence on social media, there's real concern here. And this story is everything. An AI created picture of an explosion near a badly designed Pentagon, um, not the Pentagon building, a random verified Twitter account that shared it and then amplified by Russia Today. Ouch.
5: Yeah, yeah. I I think it really kind of says a lot about, you know, the kind of current information or misinformation ecosystem we're all living in. Um, Look, there's two big parts to this. Uh, One, as you say, is, you know, Twitter's verification process. Um, Look, I think we'd be fooling ourselves if we said Twitter was this uh, incredible platform before Elon Musk uh, came along and there was no misinformation. That was not the case. But it did have those verified, those blue ticks. And people say, you know, they meant nothing. They were a status symbol, but they were quite important Um, for news organizations and also for just public services like emergency services because what they meant uh, was Twitter has verified the person who is running this account or organization that's behind this account Is who they say they are. Um, That's no longer the case on Twitter. You can get a blue badge now just by paying a few dollars a month to Elon Musk. And that is how this Bloomberg account, a fake Bloomberg news account, started all of this yesterday. Now, it does look like this was a coordinated action because other verified accounts also shared um, the fake image at the same time. Then, of course, there's the image itself, which you can see there, uh, a pretty Badly uh, AI-generated image. Experts have told us that that it has all the signs that it was generated by AI. Folks that are familiar with Washington, D.C. or the Pentagon would recognize that that is is not the Pentagon in the picture. Uh, But nonetheless, look, in, in the panic of the moment with some verified accounts... A shoddy enough AI-generated image, uh, it was able to have a real-world impact, at least in the stock market. Um, funnily enough, uh, RT, Russia's state media, happened to pick it up and then deleted their tweet. Uh, but it did make its way onto a major uh, Indian television news network uh, before they also had to uh, retract the story.
0: Yeah. And you don't even need to see the images to see a headline that suggests that there's been an explosion at the Pentagon for, for people to start reacting and that to filter across social media, too. This is just the thin end of the wedge. Um, Doni, obviously, this is one aspect. A second is the United States Surgeon General coming out today and talking about, and I'm going to get the quote right, a profound risk of harm for children calling about the uh, calling out the attention, um, calling attention to the lack of research into the impact that social media has on, on our young people, wherever they are in the world, quite frankly.
5: Yeah, and we also heard the Surgeon General speaking recently here as well about just an epidemic of loneliness in America, which, you know, I think social media is contributing to as well. I thought what was interesting about the Surgeon General's advisory today is it kind of turns the debate back a little bit onto the social media platforms, because for a long time, the social media platforms have tried to argue to say, well, there isn't research, there isn't enough research or evidence to show that our platform. Forms are really harming kids. Uh, part of this uh, advisory today kind of said, well, we don't have a lot of research that says it's good for them either. Um, and I, I mean, I, I, th- I think as it's, as it's outlined there, the, the, the negative impacts that this is having uh, on teenagers um, uh, is, is, is clear. Um, but what, what and what really is going to happen uh, off the back of this, um, it's difficult to see. Um, you know, we know the platforms are putting in place kind of, um, uh, you know, timing, the, uh, restrictions on, on the amount of time that people can spend on the platforms, but, I mean, that barely works for adults, never mind children.
0: Yeah. Eric Schmidt was saying to us um, last week that it, it changes the way people think. We don't understand why, but we know it does. And until we start to understand that, um, the limits simply aren't enough. In my mind. Donia Sullivan, great to have you with us. Thank you. Thanks, Julie. Okay, these are some of the negative consequences of image altered by artificial intelligence, though there can be huge creative benefits too. The software giant Adobe is making it easier than ever before to enhance images with lifelike effects. This is Adobe Firefly, a powerful AI-driven text-to-image tool. In a nutshell, someone with vision perhaps, but without traditional artistic skills, can unleash some serious creativity. Adobe says Firefly is one of the most successful product launches in their 40-year history with over 100 million images created in the Firefly site since March. The company says it's handling AI images responsibly, though, by including a digital label identifying whether it was created by humans, was assisted by, or even generated by artificial intelligence. And here to discuss further, Scott Belski is Chief Strategy Officer at Adobe. He's also Executive Vice President of Design and Emerging Products. Scott, fantastic to have you on the show. Um, oh, we have a lot to discuss, um, but let's talk about Fireflies <laughs> <laughs> to, to begin. I think the beauty of this from a customer perspective is it seems to to be incredibly easy to use. And, and the images, as we were seeing there, are incredibly lifelike.
6: It's exciting. I mean, we're entering an era where people are going to be generally more creatively confident. People now will have the, uh, the skills that they have the ideas to express themselves visually, which is exciting. And then for the creative pros of the world, they have uh, tons more surface area of discovery. They save a ton of time. And ultimately, I think this will rise, raise the bar of uh, digital experiences generally that people create in Photoshop.
0: And what feedback have you had, because I mentioned a 100 million images have been created since the launch back in March? That's a lot of creativity. Well, it's-
6: it's a lot. And it's fun to see uh, customers, both new customers coming in and, you know, kicking the tires, so to speak. Uh, sometimes novelty precedes utility for people. They just want to sort of play and and see how this works. And then, you know, and then some of our some of our long-time customers are realizing that their workflows become far more productive and they just can explore more little ideas that, uh, you know, might become core parts of their workflow in the future.
0: There's not been um, a sort of launch without without complications. Um, There's been questions over how the artificial intelligence itself, sorry, cutting my teeth in gear, um, how the the artificial intelligence has been trained, what images have been used and what's collected in order to create the imagery that that you're providing, how that data is filtered for hate, violence, adult images, for example, and whether what's created can be protected in some way by copyright. Scott, I'm throwing it all at you. Tell me how you guys manage these things.
6: Well, it's this new era of possibility, and with it comes a lot of responsibility. And you know, under the hood, there are a lot of different parts that we're thinking about, and um, you know, and doing things very purposefully. First of all, you know how these models are trained matters. When you talk to our customers, I mean, they want to have commercially viable output. They want to be able to do something with what they made, and that means that the training material for these models can't be copyrighted. Um, you know, can't have a uh, can't have stuff in it that that ultimately can't be used to train the models that these customers are using. There also are a lot of safeguards in place underneath to prevent uh, generation of content that um you know that would be really troublesome. So uh, of course this technology is not perfect yet but the teams have done a lot of work to to pressure test and to also build systems in place. Now the other important thing which I'm sure we will get to is ensuring that the provenance of this content knowing how it was made and how it was edited and who made it. You know that's also really important in this world where you know we can no longer believe our eyes which is in some ways exciting it, it allows people to create all sorts of things but it also carries a number of Uh, risks with it that we have to uh, outfit our customers to navigate.
0: Yeah, you said it perfectly. We can no longer believe our eyes. And in some ways, that's incredible for the images that you can create. It's a huge problem. In an example like we saw yesterday with a fake image of an explosion at the Pentagon. Scott, knowing that you were coming on to have a conversation with me today, what did you think when you saw that? And I think you highlighted the point that there has to be some distinction online of what has been enhanced or created by artificial intelligence versus um, not.
6: Well, I think we're entering an era where, you know, instead of this notion of trust but verify, it's going to become verify then trust. We need to look at content and we need to be able to verify how it was made, where it came from, how it was edited before we can determine whether we can trust it or not, and so one of the one of the things we 've been focused on for the last four years or so is this uh, content authenticity initiative and specifically this technology called content credentials, which is open source now there are over a thousand participants, including a number of other creative tools companies and camera companies, the New York Times a number of other media outlets as well, that are on board with this idea that when content is created um, using tools, content credentials can be added so you can actually see who made it, how it was made, what generative AI capabilities were even leveraged. And all of our products that incorporate Firefly add content credentials to media by default. And so this idea is in the future when we see these sensational images or, or scary images, and we need to now you know, determine whether we can verify this content before we even trust it or share it or report on it. Uh, our hope is that content credentials becomes kind of a mainstream part of that narrative and that decision making.
0: And there's no way to remove that authenticity marker. That says this is generated or adapted by AI.
6: That's right. So this is this technology is actually a cryptographic sort of metadata uh, that is added to assets as it's made. And of course a lot of people can create content without it. um, And that that, in, that makes the provenance lost in the asset, and so you can no longer kind of check it and verify where it was made and how it was made in, you know, throughout the supply chain of, of content that's created in companies and, and for individuals. Um, and so there will be tons of content, of course, without counter-credentials. The idea, though, is that we'll start to differentiate between stuff that has that provenance, that, those credentials associated with the asset, and, uh, and the media that doesn't.
0: Yeah, it empowers the good actors. And I love the fact that you've made this open source. So good actors all have free access to this, which I think is really important, too. But to your point, I mean, if we look at the content that's created now and out there, what, 0.00000001% of this is going to have that... Um, marker on it to say, look, this has been generated or enhanced by AI. To your point, do you think that's enough? Because soon we'll be able to look at this and go, okay, well, this is not verified. And therefore, to your point, um, verify before you trust versus trust, but verify. There's just a lot of content and not a lot of time.
6: Yeah, I think it's I think it's a great point, point. and this is also a part where we're going to have to kind of evolve in the way we look at content and interpret content. You know, I remember the hearing the story of when the radio was first kind of mainstream, and people started hearing, uh, you know, when, when people tuned in and heard War of the Worlds being done on radio. A lot of people were like, "Oh my gosh, the world is ending," and then of course people learned, "Wow, there's this thing called fiction, and uh, the on radio that's going to be pervasive," and and then people start to ask that question: Wait, how do I actually? trust this how do i actually know this is real before i react to it so that's some um, that's some conditioning that we all have to get used to as the technology becomes more pervasive and i you know that's why we as a company are trying to be leaders in this space of content credentials and making it open source and getting tons and tons of other folks on board because we have to start to we have to start to empower legitimate outlets a, a, of media and people who are creators to to add counter credentials so we can start to differentiate between a lot of this stuff.
0: Yeah, there's we, there's a few we's in here. There's we as individuals, there's (laughs) we as in you as a company. What about regulators, Scott? Would you like to see your product, Firefly, regulated in order to ensure that it just doesn't add to the noise, as important as the markers are?
6: Yeah, no, I think that the, uh, first of all, the governments have to be involved in this conversation, and we're working with the U.S. and the EU and the U.K., and um, and we're, you know, one of many companies that's having these conversations right now. Um, and so I think that um, it's important that uh, that governments, you know, are, are are helping drive this conversation, also understanding how this technology works. Um, you know, that's one thing we've been trying to do is just to kind of also educate, you know, a lot of the folks that we work with with how this technology works. And, you know, and, and, you know, I don't know exactly how the policies will evolve. Um, I do know that a lot of this technology, of course, is, you know, widely available in in various places. And so we have to um, we have to involve our approach and there has to be uh, sort of uh, widely available technologies like counter credentials for people to start using. And, you know, these conversations are just getting started, though.
0: Yeah, I like that you say that, though. Um, I don't know. And I don't think lawmakers know either. And I don't think anybody in the industry, as much as we're seeing these products develop, um, knows what the answer is. But to your point, at least we're having the conversation. Scott Belsky, Chief Strategy Officer at Adobe. Great to chat to you, sir. Thank you. We're back after this. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks are up and running on Wall Street this Tuesday and uh, a little Tuesday turbulence as we await the latest developments in those debt ceiling talks. Just nine days left to go before the U.S. could run out of the money to pay bills and then default on interest payments on its debt. That's a worst case scenario. Stock markets remain, though, relatively calm Despite the uncertainties, but plenty of volatility in the bond markets with yields on one month U.S. Treasury surging by more than 5% in the previous session. That denotes nervousness. Now, Washington watcher and friend of the show, Greg Valliere, saying in a note today that we are only halfway to a debt ceiling deal, but that an important agreement on spending caps might be in sight. He said that could increase the chances of an overall agreement. So signs of optimism there from Greg. Now, the crew of the AX-2 mission are nearing the end of their first 24 hours aboard the International Space Station. Here they are climbing out of their SpaceX capsule, floating out actually a couple of hours after it docked with the International Space Station. This time yesterday, the crew, which includes three paying customers, is the second all private mission to the International Space Station and marks our new space age, which has been defined, I think, by a bunch of very excitable billionaires, but also includes a whole wave of innovation and creativity that has grown outside the influence of the traditional government aerospace complex. And that's something our next guest understands very well. Not only did he write the biography on Elon Musk, Tesla, SpaceX, and the quest for a fantastic future, but his latest bestseller profiles four trailblazing startups Planet Labs, Astra, Rocket Lab, and Firefly. Ashley Vance is the author of the new book, When the Heavens Went on Sale, The Misfits and Geniuses Racing to Put Space Within Reach. Ashley, fantastic to have you on the show. You can be a genius and a misfit, quite frankly, and I think we've seen a bit of that. Um, Welcome. The book begins with um, the SpaceX team, and it was many years ago on what feels like a desert island. It was actually the wrong island. Um, Launching rockets and I think losing a bit of hope. I think the beauty of this book is it's character driven. It's funny. It's amusing, but it's also helps you understand, I think, that it's just way bigger than the quest for Mars and the moon. There's a lot going on.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, this book really goes away from the governments of the billionaires to look at what I describe as the Wild West of space. And, and it's this focus on, on the area right above us, low Earth orbit, which we are filling with, with thousands upon thousands of satellites very quickly and, and ushering in this whole new era of commercial space.
0: You talk about, and I mentioned, um, four companies operating in lower Earth orbit in particular, and some of those names will be familiar to my viewers. Planet Labs CEO Will Marshall features in the book, and he's been on the show as well. Um, Different characters, different motivations, I think, and no real understanding, at least in the beginning, and you portray this so well, of really what the commercial or the financial opportunity is. What do you see as the driver? Like, What connects these individuals
1: Well, I think they come at it, they do come at it from different approaches. Will Marshall, like you mentioned, he's this idealist. He wants to study the earth with imaging satellites. Um, there's a guy, Max Polyakov, who's this Ukrainian behind Firefly. He sort of had the, the Soviet space program in his blood. His parents worked on it. I argue in the book, you know, that we, that we have these idealistic, these um, passionate motivations that have been in space for a long time, but some of this is changing and it is now just becoming a, a capitalist exercise to try and make money. And so, I, you know, I try to document some of that, that shift.
0: Yeah, and it's um, very amusing um, as you do it. There's sort of, um, as you portray, sort of a preoccupation with building rockets and clearly bringing the cost of rockets down has been fundamental, I think, and essential. But um, to your point, where the money is, is what we're talking about with satellites in in lower Earth orbit.
1: Yeah, it's funny. Everybody wants to make a rocket. (laughs) There's not much money in it at all. We can digest that. Uh, There's a lot of men there, too. (laughs) Yes, yes, yes. And this is like what the venture capitalists want to fund. They just want to have a rocket. But, you know, even for SpaceX, which is is the best at flying rockets, I mean, the value of the company is tied up in its Starlink space Internet system. This is like a telecommunications data system. And and that's where the money is. And, And we're seeing the rocket companies evolve to to pick up more of these tasks as well. And and all of these businesses overlap now, but uh, exactly where the business case makes sense is still to be determined.
0: You know, Planet Labs came to my attention through Microsoft when they were taking photographs in Ukraine and potentially providing imagery that would be used in um, war crime trials, for example, or whether buildings are uh, inhabitable and and can be made inhabitable and how quickly. They have a constellation of satellites that you you describe as being eyes in the sky, effectively, um, all over the world. I mean, this is technology that the United States government, that, that China, that Russia doesn't have, too, is this dramatic evolution of power, commercial or otherwise, to the private sector.
1: And we've seen this huge shift that's taken place very rapidly. I mean, this is what I wanted people to know. From nineteen sixty to about twenty twenty, we put up two thousand five hundred satellites. In the last three years, that's gone to ten thousand. It's gonna go to hundred thousand, and almost all of those are commercial satellites, whereas, you know, the past it was government scientific stuff. And so um this this balance of power is flipped very quickly. It has some risks to it. In the case of planets. We, we also saw images leading up to Ukraine of, of Russian troops amassing on, on the border. So we, we sort of had this, this level of truth that's not controlled by a government. And I think it's this new, very exciting era. We're going to have to figure out how to manage all of these satellites, but we're going to be, you know, just awash in new information and communications, the likes of which we've never seen before.
0: It's funny, I've read just about every interview that you've done on um, this book, and you've always mentioned this statistic. And to reiterate to my viewers, um, the potential in the next 10 years to have 200,000 um, satellites in lower Earth orbit compared to 2,500 <laughs> that we had. I mean, this is a mind-blowing statistic. So I can see that it's something that for you is just, and for all your experience of, of writing and understanding this sphere and, and this particular space and And space age, the time that we're in, what does that mean yeah. Ashley to you and to, and to these individuals? Well,
1: yeah, I mean, like I said, it's very exciting for me, and I think most of this stuff is is optimistic. I just didn't think people were paying attention to what's going <laughs> yeah. on. Um, you know these numbers are just sitting out there, the rockets are going off all the time. I think because commercial space had been this thing that people had chased for a while, and we had a few false starts, so I'm not sure people really understand and maybe they see a spacex launch every now and then but this is like a worldwide race there's rocket companies everywhere there's satellite companies everywhere whatever reality used to exist with a handful of governments controlling all this stuff is is definitely over and and so you know i wanted people to before it's kind of too late to talk about some of these things to to have a discussion and just see how this business was built and and the very exciting characters in it far far beyond the billionaires
0: yeah, but the opportunities as well, I think, for um, for humanity that's being created. I mean, the idea of having all these satellites around, and you talk about this too, broadband access around the world potentially, but also for bad actors, there's also opportunities in what we're creating as well. Um, I want to ensure that we help people that may consider reading this book to help them understand why it's also an amusing read. I mean, there's some very fun characters in there and big personalities. And you connect what is this new age and these new personalities with some like um, General Pete Wardon, who was running black ops um, operations, then found himself at NASA. He met um, biased Will Marshall, who we love at Planet Labs, and and referred to himself as Darth Vader. I mean, some some of these characters are lively, to say the least.
1: Absolutely. I mean, that—that's what really drew drew me into doing this in the first place. These these people were sort of larger than life and and unexpected. I think most of the space stories we've ever heard. It's always our, our, our best and bravest, um, you know, pilots and our smartest engineers from MIT and Ivy League schools. And, and it seems a bit buttoned up. And, and this, the reality of commercial space is quite different. I mean, you, you just have uh, high school dropouts, you've got welders yes. from Texas, a lot of young 20 something <laughs> military people. It's, it's a new cast of characters.
0: And and actually, and I don't want to bring it back to the billionaires, but I'm going to. And that's the thing with Elon Musk, because dramatically successful. But some of these characters, you're sort of looking at them and you're saying, you know, these guys are responsible for putting satellites and and rockets um, into space. And at times um, their personalities, I'm not sure whether (laughs) I want to be trusting what they're doing Um, just in the last 24 hours. We had uh, an AI, we think, altered image of an explosion at the Pentagon. It wasn't real. It was retweeted by a verified Twitter account. And we've talked a lot about the complexities of this on the show and the challenges. Um, At the same time, a SpaceX um, Crew Dragon has landed at the International Space Station. It's like the two greatest extremes of whoever and whatever Elon Musk is. Ashley, you know him best. You think and have said Twitter's a waste of his talent. What do you make of what we're seeing?
1: Well, we're, you know, we're, with Elon, <laughs> we're seeing a lot of unpredictable behavior, although SpaceX is is remarkably consistent for what, what they do. I mean, I think of the bigger picture when you link these two things up and, and some of the themes in my book, we're seeing just what's been happening for the last 20 years, which is that technology companies now, have the power of, of nation states. I mean, SpaceX has, has better rockets, more satellites than any nation. Companies like Google that are building these AI systems have larger computers than any nation. And and this is the era I mean, we, the engineers have become the wealthiest, most powerful people in, in the world. And, and they're sort of creating a world um, in their image. And this is what we're dealing with now.
0: Are we safe? in their hands actually?
1: Wow, it's a big bold question. <laughs> you know, it's the, my job. Uh, I mean it's a it's <laughs> it's interesting because if we look at something like Ukraine where SpaceX was supplying the Starlink internet system and, and still is to the Ukrainian military and government, um, again, this is this is a company that has the power of a nation state and is is at at Elon Musk's, you know, sort of whims, there were times when he wanted to, to pull the system away because it was expensive and and there was nothing to, to replace it. Um so I think we're in this is what I argue in the book as well, we're just in for a very chaotic uh time when traditional power structures are getting turned upside down. I tend to be an optimist overall. Maybe it is naive, but I travel the world looking at technology and and I just always come away fairly optimistic at at what's coming.
0: Yeah, I'm optimistic about the technology. It's the the handling of it and the use of it that that makes me very cautious Um, to my question. Actually, very quickly, didn't he threaten or at least consider suing you, Elon Musk, by the way? Perhaps it means he loves you. (laughs)
1: For a time. We've patched yeah. things up. <laughs>
0: okay, you're over right that yeah. Just thought I should mention. mention. Um, Ashley, <laughs> great to chat to you. Thank you so much. And um, it's a fun book, When the Heavens Went on Sale. Ashley Vance there. Welcome back to First Move. This hour, jailed American journalist Evan Gershkovich is expected to appear in court in Russia for a hearing on extending his pretrial detention. The Wall Street Journal reporter was arrested in late March and accused of spying, a charge the US government and the Wall Street Journal strongly deny. CNN contributor and former Moscow Bureau Chief Jill Doherty joins us now. Jill, um, we are now, I believe, expected to see him, as I I mentioned. He's been in prison for two months, so I think, firstly, very important to see just simply how he's doing physically. But can we expect, and is it safe to assume, that his pre-trial detention will be extended?
7: Well, uh, judging by what's happened so far, Julia, I'd, I'd have to say yes. Unfortunately, he's already been denied uh, bail. They've offered bail to get him out at least into um, house arrest instead of being in a prison. Conditions in La Forte of the prison are not good. And, you know, the concern obviously is for his health. But if you look at what's been happening since he was arrested, there are really bad signs. I mean, they have refused, the Russian government or the prison system has refused consular access. That means that U.S. diplomats who want to see him and assess his situation and talk with him have not been allowed to do that, except I think it is probably once so far. And even the reasons that the Russian government has given for denying consular access are things like um, the last time it was, well, Russian journalists who were covering the foreign minister's trip to New York to the United Nations didn't get their visas. And that, of course, raises the question, what does that issue have to do with a charge of espionage? So it's, it's a very difficult situation. And speaking with diplomats who know the case and have dealt with previous cases, they say that at every turn, Russia is slowing down the process deliberately to drag this out for whatever their purposes are.
0: Leverage. Jill Doherty, thank you so much for that. We'll see what happens later this hour. Welcome back to First Move and wedding bells for a billionaire. Her source telling CNN that the Amazon founder is engaged to his partner, Lauren Sanchez. The couple have been together since 2019. No details so far on how the engagement happened or who asked who. Chloe Mellas joins us now. Chloe, that was not what was written. Um, Congratulations to Mr. Sanchez. This really is a, um, I think, a meeting of equals. And you obviously had the chance to sit with them together. And I remember watching that interview that, that you did with them and thinking, Hmm. You know, I was
8: I I was caught off guard, Julia, by the announcement of the engagement. Uh, But, you know, they have a lot to celebrate and they have really perfected this beautiful partnership that they have together. And we've been seeing the pictures of them on Jeff's now their mega yacht um, cruising the seas. And here's a look back at their relationship and my interview with them. Billionaire Jeff Bezos is engaged. A source close to the couple says the Amazon founder and his partner Lauren Sanchez plan to tie the knot. Though no details about the proposal or any wedding plans have yet been made public. Sanchez, a philanthropist and former award-winning journalist and Bezos first revealed the relationship in 2019.
5: Lauren is the most generous, most big-hearted person um, that you would ever meet.
8: Last year, I interviewed the couple at their Washington, D.C. home for their first ever joint interview, revealing details of their lives together that previously hadn't been shared by the private couple. I'd love to know, what does a typical Saturday night look like for Jeff and Lauren?
5: We can be kind of boring. <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> You're never boring.
8: I mean, little, that's not true. But it's, I, mean, I can be boring. It's really, I, I would say, normal. We have dinner with the kids. Um, that's always fun. Bezos has four children from his previous marriage with Mackenzie Scott, and Sanchez has three children from previous relationships. There's seven between us, so there's a lot of um, a lot of discussion, and then we watch a movie. And typical
5: Saturday night, probably a movie.
8: By committee, it takes a long time to find that movie, (laughs) wouldn't
5: you say? (laughs) Yeah, we probably spend more time picking the movie than we need to. But I think that's the fun part. It's fun.
8: As the founder of space company Blue Origin, Bezos was aboard a 2021 flight into space and back on Blue Origin's new Shepard rocket. Sanchez, also a helicopter pilot, said she's ready to head to space one day.
5: She wants to go. I'm
8: ready. Together?
5: No, he's already been. We'll see. I think she has some ideas about who she wants to go with. We'll see. I think it'll be a
8: great group of females. (laughs) A source familiar with the making of Bezos' mega yacht says the billionaire had a figurehead at the bow of the ship made in the likeness of the Norse goddess Freya with a striking resemblance to Sanchez. A grand gesture that may hint at a grand wedding to come. I mean, that's the big question. When is the wedding, Julia? Who's going to be invited? Uh, You know, this couple, they are doing so much for good. Uh, You know, they have the Bezos Academy. Uh, Lauren Sanchez is an integral part in Jeff Bezos' philanthropy uh, with the Bezos Earth Fund. And, you know, they clearly mix business and pleasure really well together.
0: Yeah, I love that bit where she was like, it's kind of boring. He was like, you're not boring. (laughs) (laughs) What do, they, what do these people have to fight about? Chloe, why were you caught off guard? What you said there at the beginning actually caught my attention. Yeah. Why?
8: Because they've both been married before, right? They both have, mm. you know, grown children. They've been dating for several years, and it's working so well, and they're so in love. You know, I think I always might have thought that they might get married down the line, uh, but sometimes you see powerful and celebrity couples who just, you know, don't end up getting married. Look at uh, Goldie Hahn and her longtime partner. Uh, so I think that, you know, they don't, you don't always see them walk down the aisle, but they are so in love. I got a chance to really see them off camera. We were hanging out in their kitchen in Washington, D.C., and they were holding hands and, you know, kind of snuggling with each other, finishing each other's sentences. And it's the truth. I mean, I think that this is, I really believe that this is the real deal. And they truly, they just work well together. They love each other. um, And they have the same vision about the earth and their goals to try to um, use the wealth for good. So I think that this is a perfect
0: union, Julia. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? I was just thinking as you were saying about all the reasons why it works. In that case, why not get married? There's sort of a traditional feel to that if you think you found the right person. Um, yeah. Get married. Are they going to get married in space, Chloe? That's the question. <laughs> she didn't seem that happy with that idea, did she? She was like, I, I want to be moon. with the girls.
8: Maybe they're gonna get married on oh, the moon right. with his with his new contract, right? Long engagement, blue
0: moon. Yeah. <laughs> we want we want the details. Yeah, we want the. Well, details. Well, I will
8: be getting them. You know me, so I'm I, you know, stick with I, me, and I'll I'll get I have you the
0: details. All, all <laughs> confidence in you getting the details and getting them first, Chloe. We wait and see. Thank you, thank Chloe. you, Chloe Mellis. There, thank you. That's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they'll be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. You can search for at J CNN. Connect the World with Becky Anderson is up next. And I'll see you tomorrow.
4: I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you.